Years ago, I attended a women's retreat. It was led by my therapist friend, Elizabeth. There were actually 12 to 18 women that would go on this retreat. And we were ranging in age from our early 30s to our 60s. We were pretty different and came from different ways of life. The only real thing we had in common was that we all knew Elizabeth. At the beginning of the retreat, we would start by introducing ourselves, giving a little background, telling who we are, and how we knew Elizabeth. She would then ask us to make a covenant to share how we wanted to treat each other over the course of the weekend, how we planned to respect each other, how we planned to listen to each other. We'd share things like judgment-free zone, listening to each other, and using the word I to ensure we were talking about ourselves instead of the plural of we. We talked about not interrupting each other and not finishing each other's sentences, which we do sometimes. By the time we were finished, we had a full page of the best way to be in retreat with each other. We had a covenant, and we all signed it on the bottom. Paul, the author of Romans, is doing the same thing in Romans 12 this morning. The difference is that he's not asking you what you think you ought to do and how you think you need to treat others. He's actually telling us what we're supposed to be and telling us what we're supposed to do. We aren't a group of women on retreat. He is speaking to Jews and Gentiles who are far more different than Elizabeth's friends were at the women's retreat. And it's not a full page of writing that we're being asked to sign. It's a letter. And it's a rather lengthy letter. In a way, he's asking for each of us to sign the bottom of the letter. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And this church is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. After 11 chapters in this letter to the, Rome, to the church in Rome, in which Paul articulates a profound theology of God's grace in Jesus Christ, he moves to chapter 12 in its practical appeal. And he wants to talk about love from the center of who you are. The fact that he spends considerable time unpacking what that means points to his writing to a group of Christians who are not getting along. In one part of the church, we have the Jewish Christians, those who believe in Jesus, and they also observe the Torah, the law of God, as articulated most especially in the first five books of the Bible. So they take seriously the most, they take seriously things that most people in Rome think nothing about. And most centrally at issue in the church is that these Jewish Christians do not eat meat used as a sacrifice to a pagan god. No idle meat. In fact, one of the central ways this group shows faith, is force and faithfulness is to God, is by keeping God's sacred laws. In the same church, on the other side, 
You have the Gentile Christians, those from Rome, very cosmopolitan, who have converted to Christianity and believe Jesus is the Son of God, but do not believe that the Torah is binding. So you have one population following the law of the Torah and one population saying it's not important. They are free in Jesus Christ and will eat any and all meat because the idols in which the meat are offered are not real gods. So they eat all the meat. The other group doesn't eat the meat that's in idols that has given for the idol gods. So now you have a conflict over who's eating what. It perhaps doesn't surprise us, at least with these two groups, that they're having difficult times getting along. There seems to be so much more to Christianity than meat. The Jewish Christians set in judgment of the Gentile Christians. As Paul puts in Romans 14, it's a Greek word that has the sense of playing the part of God. Sit in judgment. Have you ever had someone sit in judgment of you? It means of rendering what God thinks about that person to those people. The Jewish Christians have the scripture on their side. They are keeping the faith accordingly. And so, yeah, they sit in the seat of God and they judge the free-willing, loose morals. Surely seems like everything can go Gentiles. The Gentile Christians... Paul writes in Romans 14, disdain, what a word, disdain the Jewish Christians. That word in Greek means to perceive someone as beneath yourself, lower than you. The Gentile Christians who likely have some among them from the most elite part of the society look down upon the Jewish Christians. They see the Jewish Christians as backward, as antiquated, as people who just don't get it, and to follow rigid food laws that seem would lead to social ostrich, to leave you, I'm trying to think of my word here, outsiders, would make you social outsiders. And likely material loss before you just didn't turn down shared meat in the society. Judgment from one direction to the other. Disdain from one side to the other. The Church of Jesus Christ in Rome, now these two groups are quite different in this sense. So you see, we're not really in the position that these Gentiles and these Jews are in. Last I heard at Lawrenceville First, we didn't have a complaint about meat. And last I heard, we all believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But now, we're reading this wonderful letter from Paul. Paul emphasizes authentic love. He says, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. The type of love that Paul describes here is energetic, profoundly enthusiastic, and a little bit of the counterculture that was existing. 
Paul invites Christians to consider love and good to be the constant partners accompanying the Christians and providing context for attitudes and actions. He says, love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Did you grow up with siblings? We spent a lot of time outdoing each other, but it wasn't in honor. We spent a lot of time trying to win the favor of our masters, mom and dad, and it depended on who got to whom first. Did you run to mom first? Did you run to dad first? Who did you show honor? It certainly wasn't to each other. In verse 10, Paul highlights love as a form of affection siblings should have for one another, suggesting that Christians treat one another like family or kinfolk. Do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord. Verse 11 encourages steadfast and earnest practice of Christian principles through the Spirit. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, preserve perseverance in prayer. Verse 12 emphasizes rejoicing, hope, perseverance, patience in suffering, and praying without ceasing. Paul wants the early Christians to share what Christians in need want and care for each other to provide for them what they need, to be hospitable, to open their home to those that need and share it. You see, there wasn't a Holiday Inn or a Motel 6. When they traveled, they had to find a place to sleep among the people in the village, in the town that they were entering. And those people tended to have the same beliefs. So it was difficult to be hospitable. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In verse 14, we switch from taking care of each other. The attention has now shifted to those who would attack or harm us. Paul assumes that persecution will come to those that are loyal to Jesus. Paul is following Jesus' teaching. Hostility was to be met with prayer and violence with blessing. This is hard. How are you to take someone that attacks you and pray for them and give them blessings? Being a Christian is hard. Paul is following Jesus' teaching. He's realistic. He knows that there will be many times when living at peace with each other, inhabiting the streets, let alone the city, will be impossible. But he summons Christians to make every effort in that direction. Beloved, Never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there's some comfort. There's some comfort. I don't have to worry about vengeance. It's God's to do. 
but still attack me and I'm supposed to bless you? Still harm me and I'm supposed to pray for you? Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Now, we're not literally going to put burning coals on their head. But by doing this act of goodness, we will shock them. We will make them take note that we are different. The coals of fire are almost certainly intended as the burning shame of remorse for treating someone so badly. The point is then that treating enemies kindly is not only appropriate behavior in its own right, refusing the vengeance that would upserve God's prerogative, it may also turn their hearts. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul summarizes the whole paragraph with another reference to the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, there is evil out there in the world, but God's people are to meet it in the way that even God met it, with love, generosity, and goodness. Paul's writing to the Christians in Rome makes us a little uncomfortable. It does me, for sure. In today's story, Paul explains what love should look like for the church and for others in the community. Paul calls for sincere love without pretending. He says, you should hate evil and cling to what is good. You should love one another like family. We also should show honor to one another. Paul says we should be enthusiastic about serving the Lord. We are to find happiness and hope and stand our ground even in troubled times. Paul also addresses how to deal with people who are different from us. We are to treat one another as equals, not consider ourselves better than the other one. We are to befriend those with no status and not have an inflated idea of our own intelligence. We are not to seek revenge on those who have wronged us. We are to show respect for the beliefs of those who believe something different from us. I am confident that each of us have been wronged, wounded, hurt by others. And so you know that when this happens, a struggle is released. Within us to see whether we will be overcome by the evil or we will respond in kindness and push back that desire for revenge, to pay back, and we would choose love. Most importantly, we are to live in peace with everyone. We are called to love, but love can be challenging. It might seem impossible to demonstrate this kind of love. How can we possibly always be loving? This story shows many ways to love. We can't always show perfect love, but we can choose one way to offer our best love. You see, love is not 
perfection. Love means trying. Love means giving it a little more effort. God did not tell us that loving others would be easy, but God did tell us we would not be alone. Amen.